Okay, hear the word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A few years ago, I discovered something um, brand new in my life, and that is if you read a uh, biography of some historical figure, your life can be um, greatly impacted. Uh, you see, I read this book review uh, on a book on um, a biography about Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous 19th century uh, Baptist pastor, and the review gave it such a, a, a raving uh, review that I decided oh, I better check it out. So I read it. <clears throat> And I've got to tell you, I was really inspired um, as a preacher. Um, found so many helpful uh, facts from Spurgeon's life. Uh, that actually whet my appetite, so I went out and got Ian Murray's copy of um, the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and the same thing happened. I was greatly impacted, maybe even more so uh, in that <clears throat> biography. And so it's actually amazing how someone's life from the past how that can make such a, an impact on our lives today. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that. Uh, I'm sure many of you have read um, biographies or, or even seen a movie about some historical figure. Uh, if you've ever read about Martin Luther, his courage in the Reformation, uh, that's very inspiring. Or even, even something as simple as, um, if you've ever read a biography on Steve Jobs, uh, his innovation, his creativity, it's it's actually inspiring. It kind of like, it stirs us up. It, wants, it makes us want to do better in life. Uh, but here's the thing. Sometimes people can think that that's how Jesus, that's how Jesus' life impacts us today. As if the way that, you know, the things Jesus did in the past, that the way that can change our lives today is simply by this same kind of inspiration now, we hear about some great deed 
and we feel inspired to try harder to be like them. Uh, sometimes people can think that that's all a Christian actually is. But what we've been learning in Romans is that the impact that Jesus has on us today, it's so much greater and so much deeper than just being a source of inspiration or an example to follow. Uh, Paul has been showing us in Romans that, that Jesus' life, Jesus' obedience and his death on the cross, it's not just a source of inspiration, but it is actually the very means of our justification. It's the very means of how God puts us who are sinners in the right with him. Okay, it's done by the things Jesus did. And when we're justified, we learned last week uh, in that section at the start of Romans 5, that when we're justified, that guarantees that we will also be glorified. Okay, that one day we'll rise from the dead and reign with Jesus forever. That's guaranteed. And it's almost like Paul anticipates a question, though, at the end of chapter 5, verse 11. But, you know, telling us that we're justified by Christ's obedience, uh, we're guaranteed the hope of eternal life. It's almost like Paul anticipates that people will read that and think, yeah, but how does that actually work? How does it work that what someone did so long ago, you know, some 2,000 years ago now, how can that impact our lives today? How does it work? What's the connection Okay, how, does, how do we bridge from Jesus to us today? How does it work? And that's what Paul answers in this, question, uh, in this passage that we're looking at today. In Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. And the way Paul answers the question, how does the life of Christ impact us today? Is he introduces us to the idea of representatives. Representatives. He, he shows us that there are two representatives of the human race. There is Adam and then there is Jesus. Two representatives. And, and every single person falls under those two representatives. Okay? You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And as we'll see in this passage, the actions of Adam or the actions of Jesus determine everything that's important about you. And so let's look at the, this passage. I've only got two points today, uh, and they're two very simple points. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. So let's look at that. This is what it means to be in Adam. First of all, look at verse 12. Verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, the one man that Paul's talking about is, of course, Adam, as if you read on, he mentions Adam. And Adam is the one who brought sin into the world. That's why we read from Genesis 3 earlier, because that's the actual account of when that happened. And by bringing sin into the world, Adam also brought death into the world, because death is the punishment for sin. God warned Adam that if you disobey, you will die that's exactly what happened. And that, that actually tells us that sin and death, which really are the cause of all the misery in the world, 
Though that was not part of God's original creation. When God first created the world, there wasn't sin, there wasn't death, and therefore there wasn't misery. Now sometimes uh, people assume that death must be a natural and necessary part of the world and a part of life. You know, it's kind of the way that biology moves forward. But according to the Bible, that's not so. Death was actually not part of God's original creation. It came in through the disobedience of Adam. But what this verse is showing us, it's showing us how Adam's actions actually affect us today. And if you look at the end of verse 12, it says that death spread to all men or all people because all sinned. And it's very interesting what Paul says there. When he says that all sinned, that all sin, it's actually talking about a single past action. It's actually saying that death spread to all of humanity because everyone together sinned in one past single action. Or to put it another way, it's saying that in Adam's one act of disobedience, everyone was involved. Okay? Everyone sinned with Adam. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is where Paul is introducing this idea of a representative, uh, this concept of representation. When Adam was in that Garden of Eden, he wasn't just acting on his own behalf. He was actually the representative of all humanity. You know, as the first man, everything he did was done on behalf of everyone who would come after him. And uh, that's, that's what we mean by this idea of a representative. Now, the concept of a representative, I think it's something that we can all pretty easily understand because there's so many examples of it in life. Uh, just to give you one example, last Sunday night I got a text message that had one simple phrase. It said, we won by a point, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, and so on. And <clears throat> that was a reference to um, Collingwood defeating um, Adelaide. And, uh, but, you know, here's this text and it says, we won by a point. Now, what's this we business? It's not like me and the uh, um, person who wrote the text were out on the field playing. What do you mean we won? I thought Collingwood won. But do you see what they're saying? Uh, there's a sense in which a, sports, a, a sporting team's fan is so united with the actual sporting team that whatever the team achieves is shared by all of the fans. And that's why you know, true sports fans, they don't say my team won or, or they won. They always say, we, it's us, we did it. Okay? Because the team represents all of the fans. And that's even more obvious in something like the Olympics uh, where a single athlete can represent a whole nation. So you've got the whole nation you know, kind of riding on the back of the, the athlete. And so if that one athlete wins, it feels like the whole nation wins. That's the idea of representation. Now, a better example would actually be, uh, it's, a, it's a, not an exciting example, a more boring one, but the way leaders represent us in, um, in our country. So even in a democracy, <clears throat> uh, you know, we don't take a public vote 
on every single decision that needs to be made to run the country because otherwise we would all be doing nothing all day other than um, you know, polls and things. Uh, instead, what we do is we, we elect <clears throat> uh, leaders who represent us and make decisions on our behalf. And uh, that means that whatever their decisions are, uh, that's our decisions. Okay? They act on our behalf. Their decisions are our decisions. So it's as if we're making them. And uh, so that means, for example, if one day the Prime Minister uh, did something like declares that Australia is now at war, uh, then he makes that decision on behalf of all of us, which means we're all at war. And whether we personally agree with that decision or not uh, is irrelevant. The point is, if the Prime Minister makes that decision, that's our decision. We're all involved. Uh, that's the idea of representation. And what this passage is saying is that God actually relates to all humanity through a representative. Okay? We all have a representative. And Adam, he is the first man, which means he, he not only represents everyone physically, but he also represents everyone covenantally. And the reason I use that word is because that's, that's really the framework for understanding this. You see, when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam was in a relationship with God where God set out terms of how the relationship would work. And the terms, you can see it's a covenantal structure where Adam was promised blessing for obedience, but if he disobeyed, he was told there would be curse, the curse of death. And the structure of that relationship, it is a covenant, which is why theologians often call the relationship that Adam had with God a covenant of works, because it was based on Adam's obedience. Okay, if Adam obeyed, then he would keep the covenant, not just for himself, but for everyone he represents, all of humanity. All of humanity would have shared in the blessing of his obedience. And yet, what did Adam do? He failed, he broke the covenant. And therefore, he brought the curse of death, not only on himself, but on everyone he represents, all of humanity. And so to be represented by Adam in that covenant of works, it means that everything that is true about Adam is now true of us. So it means we're all now born in sin. We're born under sin. We're born already condemned in Adam. And we're born already under the sentence of death. That's what it means to be in Adam, to have him as your representative. And you can actually see this fact stated right throughout this passage. Uh, if you look at verse 15, it talks about, in the second sentence there, uh, many died through one man's trespass. See how there's a one and a many. The one is Adam, the many is everyone. Uh, in verse 16, uh, he says that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. See, one trespass, condemnation for everyone. Uh, verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And maybe verse 18 is the clearest. If you look down at um, verse 18, uh, it says, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. One 
trespass, one mistake, and everyone is condemned. That's the way it works. <clears throat> because Adam acted on our behalf as our covenant head. And so this is actually the way God relates to humanity. He doesn't relate to everyone just as individuals, but always through a representative, always through a covenant head. And so from God's point of view, when Adam sinned, we all sinned, which is what verse 12 said. And because we all sinned in Adam, it means that we're now born as sinners. So we go on sinning. Uh, we, we walk in the footsteps of Adam, turning away from God. In fact, as sinners, we're actually enslaved to sin so that even when we want to do what is good, even when we want to do better, we still find ourselves still sinning. It's like we can't stop sinning. It's impossible for us to go, from this day forward, I will never sin again. It doesn't work. Because in Adam, we're sinners. We're not only guilty in Adam, but we also uh, share his inner corruption, which is what theologians call original sin. You, know, you might have heard of that and thought, does that just mean something back at the beginning? Well, no, no, it refers to the, the result of Adam's sin, that we all share in his corruption. And so we're actually not morally neutral people who occasionally do the wrong thing. We are by nature sinners. And sin comes out of us automatically. Uh, and I don't know about you, but that, that fits my experience. Okay, that fits experience. It's why um, if you've got, or if you've had children, you know for a fact you didn't have to teach them how to sin. Okay? You don't have to teach a child how to be selfish or how to lie or how to get angry when something doesn't go your way. Okay? That just comes out automatically. I've never had a parent ring me up saying, I am so stressed out with my two-year-old. No matter how hard I try to teach them to be selfish, they just don't seem to be able to get it. Okay? You will never hear that. Because selfishness just comes out automatically. Why is that? It's because we are born in Adam. We are born sinful. And because of Adam, we all die. Now, I have to admit that when I, the first time I heard this teaching from the Bible, do you know what my reaction was? That's not fair. Okay? How, come, how come I have to suffer the consequences of Adam's choice. To me, that didn't sound fair. But it turns out that's actually something that only a Westerner would think. Because in our Western world, uh, we are very individualistic in our thinking. And so that we have this frame of mind that you know, no one can determine my life apart from me. No one can determine my destiny apart from me. That's how we tend to think. And so we don't like... Uh, you know, we don't like being represented by someone else. Um, sometimes we even struggle in our democracy <laughs> with our representatives. Uh, we don't like people making decisions for us, and we certainly don't like being held responsible for the mistakes that our representative makes. It seems a little bit unfair. Or, or even with Adam, we don't like the idea that we didn't get to choose who our representative is. You know, when was the election? When did we decide that Adam should be our representative? Because, you know, can't we choose someone better? <laughs> can't, 
Can't we choose someone who doesn't fail? So why should we have to suffer for Adam's mistake? But what we see here in this passage is that instead of us choosing our own representative, God actually chose one for us. Not only that, he actually created one. And he created a perfect representative. Because when God created Adam, Adam was sinless. And Adam was put in a perfect setting, which meant he had everything going for him. Right? Everything was going for him. And therefore, for us to assume that, that we personally would do better than Adam, or that we would do better than God and choose a better representative, is, well, let's just say that's assuming a lot. But more importantly, as we're actually going to see when we consider Jesus, who is the second Adam, that being held responsible for something our representative does, that's actually the greatest news you'll ever hear. And we'll get to that in a minute. But for now, we just need to we'll just kind of stop and, and take note here. So, you know, we're asking the question, how can what one man did so long ago impact our lives today? How can what Jesus did so long ago impact our lives today? And Paul answers that by taking us back far further than Jesus, right back to the first man and saying, look, you already know what it's like to be impacted by the past actions of a representative because, look, we're all sinners. We all die. That's because of Adam. Okay, so we know what it's like to have, to, to have the, the impact of the actions of someone long ago. Right? We know that in Adam, and Adam, as our covenant head, as our representative, he failed the covenant of works, which means we're all born in sin, we all die. That's why the world is the way it is. If you've ever wondered why is everyone so terrible, why is death? Here, it all goes back to Adam, our first representative. In fact, we can say the world is the way it is, and guess whose fault it is? It's our fault in Adam. Okay, think about that. It's our fault in Adam. And that's, that's the first point that this passage is making. But thankfully, it's not the main point. The main point is that there is a second Adam. Okay, there's another representative. And everything that Paul says about Adam in this passage is really just to help us to see the framework for how we can understand Jesus and how he is a better representative than Adam. And that's why, if you look at the end of verse 14, it says that Adam was a type of the one to come. A type or a pattern. Uh, and that, that, that's saying that there was always going to be a second Adam. The first Adam failed, but there was always going to be Another one to come. And that, of course, is Jesus. And see, what Paul wants us to learn about Jesus in this passage, well, the first thing he wants us to learn is that Jesus is so much greater than Adam and so much better than Adam, so different and so better. And you see that in verses 15 to 17. Uh, and you would have noticed when I read it, it's a very dense um, argument. Notice there's a lot of going back and forth. You know, Adam did this, but Jesus did that. Adam did this, but Jesus did that. Let me just sum it up for you, the differences. The first Adam sinned. The second Adam obeyed. The first Adam broke one command. The second Adam kept all of God's commands. 
The first Adam brought eternal death. The second Adam brings eternal life. The first Adam brought us condemnation. The second Adam brings us... What's the opposite of condemnation? Justification. See, the first Adam enslaves us to the reign of sin. The second Adam brings a reign of grace. Brings you into the reign of grace. See, the, Paul, the point that Paul is making here is how much greater the second Adam is. Uh, so much better than the first. Because what Jesus does is not just the opposite of what Adam did, but he actually undoes what Adam does. He triumphs over what Adam did. And, and that's why Paul can say in verse 15 and verse 17, he uses this how much more language. You know, if, if Adam failed and brought all this misery, how much more does Jesus triumph over that and actually deliver you from that and bring you into something so much better? Paul talks about grace abounding in Christ in verse 15. He talks about grace coming in abundance for those who are in Christ in verse 17. Which is showing us that however powerful sin is, however powerful death is, what Christ brings is far more powerful still, that you can be delivered. And that's great news. Okay? Because if you've ever been stuck in sin, you will know how powerful sin is. Christ's grace is more powerful still. It will deliver you. You know, we just sang that song, Grace that is greater than all of our sin. That's what this passage is saying. What Jesus can do can undo what Adam has done. And so he's a far greater representative than Adam. He can overturn Adam's failure for us and actually bring us into a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And so if you've got Jesus as your representative, you are set free. You're free from sin. You're freed from death. One day you will rise and live in that freedom forever. You'll reign with Christ forever. With him as your covenant head. Now verses 18 to 21, they actually repeat the comparison between Adam and Jesus. But this time there's a slightly different emphasis. This time the emphasis is on how Jesus and Adam are actually similar. And the only similarity that they actually share is the fact that they're both representatives. And that's what Paul points out here in verses 18 to 21. Uh, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Remember how I said that as Westerners, we don't like the idea of being held responsible for what our representatives do. But what we see here in these verses is that being held responsible for what someone else does is the greatest news there is. It is the most liberating truth there is because it means that if you have Christ as your representative, then that means that everything that's true about Jesus is also true about you. It means that everything Jesus did, he did in your place and on your behalf so that God considers it as if you did it. And that's great news. 
because it means that Jesus' obedience is considered your obedience. It means Jesus' sin-defeating death is considered your sin-defeating death. Jesus' reign in glory is considered your reign in glory. Do you see how it works? If you've got Christ as your representative, everything he has done, God considers it as yours. And so you really are safe in him. And so now we can see how it is that Christ's work so long ago, how it actually impacts our lives today. Now we can actually see more clearly how it is that God can look at you and see you as righteous in his sight, even though you personally haven't kept the law. It's because he sees you in Christ. He sees everything that Jesus did as if you were there doing it. That's what it means to have Christ as your representative. And so if, if you have Jesus, well then the end of verse 17 is true of you. That you have God's grace in its abundance. You have the gift of righteousness. The gift of, of righteousness reigning in the life of one man, Jesus. See, God now sees you as no longer in Adam, but in Christ. So that's the two points. So what we're going to do now is just finish with three implications of this. Okay, if this is true, here are three implications for us to consider today. <clears throat> and the first one, which is by far the most important implication is which man represents you today? Who is your representative? Do you belong to Adam or do you belong to Christ? Because every single one of us in this room are either under Adam or Christ. And if you're not under Christ, that means you are under Adam because we are all born in Adam. We all automatically start in Adam. <clears throat> And the only way that can change, the only way you can be transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ is by repentance and faith. By turning away from sin and turning to Christ, embracing him as your Lord and Saviour. Because in order to escape sin and death, you actually need someone to do it for you. Christ has done it. So you need to turn to him, embrace him as your king. That's the first implication. That's the most important one. You must be in Christ. Otherwise, you're in Adam and you'll be lost forever. The second implication, though, is that these two representatives, Adam and, and Jesus, they actually demonstrate very clearly that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is actually far deeper than we might have ever thought about before. See, for example, uh, you, you, you might be a Christian who has a non-Christian friend and you share a lot of similarities with your non-Christian friend. You know, you both uh, enjoy the same music, both follow the same footy team, uh, both share the similar hobbies, maybe um, brought up with similar kind of values and you might think that you're basically the same except for this one little tiny difference. You know, one of you is a Christian and one of you is not. Okay? But what we see in this passage is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is far deeper than that. It's not just a little minor difference. It's the most foundational thing about you. Okay? One is in Adam. 
and one is in Christ. See, one is under sin, condemnation and death. The other is under grace, justification and life. Okay, the difference is catastrophic. It's huge. All those other things, you know, what, what music you like, um, what footy team you go for, they're all incidental things. But here's the foundational thing. One is in Adam and one is in Christ. And see, so that, that influences how we think about fellowship. Because the fellowship between two Christians is always going to be far deeper than any other fellowship you will find anywhere else. You know, here's a Christian and a non-Christian. They both go for the same footy team. They both have this sense of fellowship and solidarity. But it's nothing compared to what two people in Christ have. Or here's two people who both love the same band, go to every uh, concert and all of that. But, you know, they enjoy that together. It's nothing compared to the fellowship between two believers. So you can have two, two believers from two completely different parts of the world who have absolutely nothing in common except for this one thing. They're both in Christ. And the fellowship that those two people will have exceeds anything else. Or here's another one. Here's two people from the same family. One's a Christian and one's not a Christian. But the fellowship two believers will have is even deeper than that. Deeper than a biological family. That's how the church can be made up of all these very different people and yet they have something together that brings such solidarity and such joy that there's this sense of you know, being together, there's a common hope that is deeper than anything else. Or well, here's a third implication. The third implication of everyone being in either Adam or in Christ, the third implication is the need for the mission of the gospel. Because what does this passage tell us the underlying problem of the world is? The underlying problem of this world is what Adam achieved. Okay, it's the sin and death that, are, that have destroyed the world. That's the underlying problem. And see, things like uh, technology, uh, educating people, improving government, fixing our environment up, they're all good and important things. But none of those things can actually deal with the, the real underlying problem of sin and death. Now, they can't take it away. They can't remove death because death is the punishment for sin. For that, you actually need a saviour. Okay? You need a second Adam who comes in and fixes what the first one did. And that's what we have in Jesus. Okay? And, that's, and that's why we actually have good news for this world that is living in the misery of sin and death. We actually have good news. There's a saviour. There's one who can save you from your sin, can save you from death. And that's what the world needs to hear. The world needs to hear the good news. Your family and friends need to hear the good news. They need to hear that by believing the gospel, they're transferred out of Adam and into Christ. And that's, there, there you go, two representatives. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Where are you today?